and that the better solution is to figure out a way of understanding what dads contribute that lead to dads feeling valued because men who feel valued and men who feel needed as opposed to men who feel criticized and undervalued, men who feel valued and needed get more and more involved and are more more devoted. And even if child support income, money, is what your definition of child support is, children with involved dads also have much more money contributed by the dad to the child support than children whose dads are not involved. Welcome to the Thought Leader Revolution with Nikki Ballou. Join the revolution. There's never been a better time in history to speak your truth, find your freedom, and make your fortune. Each week, we interview the world's top thought leaders and learn the secrets of how they built a six to seven figure practice. This episode has been brought to you by eCircleAcademy.com, the proven system to add six to seven figures a year to your thought leader practice. Welcome to another exciting episode of the podcast, The Thought Leader Revolution. I'm your host, Nikki Ballou, and boy, do we have an incredible, exciting guest lined up for you today. This man is one of the top 100 global thought leaders in any field. He is a man who's been around for a long time, and he is recognized today as the world's leading authority on what he calls the boy crisis. I am speaking, of course, of none other than the one, the only, the legendary Dr. Warren Farrell. Welcome to the show, Warren. Thank you. I'm looking forward to being with you, Nikki. Me as well. Me as well, my friend. Warren, our listener is someone who is in business for themselves. They, they tend to be a little older. They tend to be in their 40s and 50s and even in their 60s. They've got kids, many of them. And so I think your message is going to be particularly poignant for them, but they may not be familiar with who you are. They're looking forward to learning from you, but they're also curious as to how you got to be the great Dr. Warren Farrell. Please tell us your backstory. Well, I don't know about the great, but here's here's my backstory. I started out doing my doctorate at NYU. I mean, I obviously started out before that, but in terms of career that led me to the boy crisis research, I started out with being on the board of the National Organization for Women when I and then decided to do my doctorate dissertation on that area. And I started to speak around the world on the issue of men and women and the importance of the women's movement. And then in the 70s, I began to see that there were a lot of divorces. And I had some disagreements with the board of now uh, members that I was with. And they wanted they were getting a great deal of, of mail and pressure from now members saying that if they got a divorce, they wanted the woman, the women who were the now members wanted to be able to make the decision to be the primary parent if they felt that that was the right thing and uh, an equal parent if they felt that was the right thing, that it should be their, their choice that they knew the children the best. And I said, whoa, that's like saying, you know, males know the medical community the best. They should decide which women want to be involved and which which women can't be involved. That equality means that an understanding that, you know, both sexes tend to be territorial in the area that we've had our traditional roles and that, you know, that really equality is about creating the opportunity for people to have their own style of parenting in the case of mothers and fathers and their own style of, you know, being effective in a corporation if, they're, if we're talking about men and women. And so we just 
disagreed there, but they said that, you know, they would be open to my doing research to see whether if it wasn't in fact true, as they thought it was true, that children that were raised by their mothers um, did much better than children raised by their fathers. Well, as I started to do my research on that for the the first book I wrote in that area called Father and Child Reunion, I found that the opposite was true, that children did uh, much, much better when they had about an equal amount of father involvement after divorce as they did mother involvement. It also, ideally for the children, just in case a person listening who has a divorce, that there's four things that are really uh, necessary after a divorce. One is equal amounts of parenting by both mother and father. Uh, Number two is that the mom and dad live about less than 20 minutes from each other. So children don't have to resent the the parent they're going to because they're giving up an activity or a friend's um, birthday party, say. Uh, number three, that there is uh, no bad mouthing that the, the children can detect from mom to dad or dad to mom. And number four, that there's a lot of couples counseling that is done on a non-emergency basis. So, But as I discovered those things, the women's movement started to uh, divorce itself uh, from me, if you will, because it felt that um, you know it wanted women to have the freedom to raise children without being married. And it wanted women to have the freedom to be able to be the primary parent after divorce if they felt that that was best. And so um, when I found out that that was not a best way to go, that the best interests of the children, but especially the boys, was to be have uh, those four things I just mentioned. Then I began to lose all my speaking engagements and hundreds of thousands of dollars a year and, you know, a a huge number of recommendations to be, um, you know, the MacArthur Foundation um, genius nominee, et cetera, et cetera. And so, um, but I decided I would go ahead and, and do the research the best I could and let it be, let it lead me to where it follows. And and I had enough money saved up to be able to survive um, for at least a couple of years that way. And so I was free, therefore, to do the research that ultimately led to the research I did for the boy crisis, which has occupied me for the last 11 years that, you know, that led to see that there are about nine or 10 different reasons for the boy crisis. But by far and away, the most important reason was the difference between children and boys who had a lot of father involvement uh, or what I call dad rich boys versus um, what I call dad deprived boys. Incredible. Wow. I had the privilege of seeing you speak at a, at a private event in Toronto for the uh, Men and Women's Summit on Masculinity, and you really went into a great deal of detail on why boys are facing a crisis today. And, and, and your book, in many ways, is a call to arms for every parent. W- whether they're divorced or not, I think it's important for parents to understand the special challenges that boys are facing today. I have two sons. They're almost 11 and 13 years old. And I definitely was very alarmed by some of the statistics that you quoted in your book. I want to just draw your attention to one of the items that you had in Chapter 5. And you're talking about some, uh, some stats out of the United Kingdom. And it said here that more men in the United Kingdom have died by suicide in the past year than all British soldiers fighting in all the wars since 1945, since the end of World War II. That is a staggering statistic to me. Uh, and I, I'd really like you to expand on this and why, why this is. Yes. Well, here's an example of this, too. In the United States, there is, at the age of nine, boys and girls rarely commit suicide. And when they do, they commit suicide at an equal level, uh, percentage-wise and, and um, numbers-wise. Between the ages of 10 and 14, boys commit suicide twice as often as girls do. Between the age of 15 and 19, Boys commit suicide at four times 
the frequency of girls. And between the ages of 20 and 25, boys commit suicide at almost six times the frequency of girls, now, which gives you a sense of how the combination of the male role and the male and male testosterone, when not properly directed, becomes not only destructive, but also self-destructive. When I say destructive, in other words, if I were to do a quick you know, sound bite takeaway on that, boys without dads hurt and boys who hurt, hurt us. They hurt us and they also hurt themselves, not only by suicide hurting themselves, but also my studies of the mass shooters have found that almost all the mass shooters after Columbine were dad deprived boys. Uh, So they they were not only boys, but also dad-deprived boys. And then secondly, I looked at the prison population. The prison population in the U.S. and Canada is about 93% male. And that we tend to know. But what we don't know is that those males are more than 90% dad-deprived males. They aren't just your everyday male. And so although today in the United States, every day and dad-deprived is becoming more and more a norm in the sense that Women who are under 30 who have children have children without being married of 53% of the time. And women who have children without being married, the children often don't know their dad. And when they do know their dad, let's say the dad and mom lived together when the child was born, that 40% of the time, by the age of three and a half, those children do not have contact with their dad much anymore. This is extremely harmful to girls on about 70 different levels. And it's extremely harmful to boys on most of those same 70 different levels. However, the difference is that it's, it's a, it is of greater, more intense harm to the boys than it is to the girls. And so the boys are far more likely to, to do that committing of suicide and, and also far more likely to join ISIS because they don't have a sense of purpose that's held, that is directed and assisted by their dad and their mom. None of this means that moms who are single moms don't do an extraordinary job being devoted to, empathetic with, nurturing of and you know a juggling act of uh, raising their children as well as they can and also doing oftentimes working outside of the home what it does mean though is that for all the hard work that women are doing who are single moms they're really swimming upstream and that the better solution is to figure out a way of understanding what dads contribute that lead to dads feeling valued because men who feel valued and men who feel needed as opposed to men who feel criticized and undervalued men who feel valued and needed get more and more involved and are more and more devoted and even if child support income money is what your definition of child support is children with involved dads also have much more money contributed by the dad to the child support than children whose dads are not involved Wow, that's that's a mouthful, honestly. And I, I'm I'm a divorced uh, father, and my uh, former wife and I have an incredible relationship right now. Um, I'm proud to say that last year we took my kids uh, on vacation together twice. One of those times with my current lady lady friend, which is pretty incredible. But yes. I know that that's not the case for most folks. I know that most folks haven't been able to make that happen for themselves. And one of the reasons that both of us work so hard on making sure that we have such a good relationship is because we know what what the odds are that our sons face, and the odds aren't good. Tell us, Warren, why 
is it so much more harmful for a boy not to have a father involved in his life versus a girl not to have a father involved in her life? For a really good question and for a few important reasons. One is that it's important for a boy or girl to have a role model of the same sex. And when children are raised by their mom, the girl does have a role model of the same sex. to get a sense of what she can and can't do and, and what, a, what a, a woman as opposed to a girl uh, looks like. A boy without a dad does not have that role model. And so that's number one. Number two is the culture has been really good uh, through the feminist movement of expanding women's sense of purpose. In the old days, women's sense of purpose used to be raised children. Now it's either uh, women's sense of purpose can be raised children, raise money, as in being an executive or do some combination of both. And that leaves girls with a sense of tailoring their purpose to their personality. Some girls are much more naturally attuned to children and raising children does not bring them disgrace. Some are much more attuned to, I want to run a corporation or be a CEO. And today that's rewarded rather than put down. And other girls are want to do a balance between those two. That's rewarded rather than put down. And other girls want to do some, some, some type of focus, like raise money when they're young, raise children when they're middle age, raise money again, or do something different totally um, when they're a little bit older. And so the culture has created the options of what I call a multi-option woman. Uh, we haven't done the same for boys. Boys learn that when they are a future dad, uh, what, they have to, what they have to do is to get their money act together so that they can give their wives the option of raising children, raising money, or doing some combination of both. And if the boy is a musician or an actor or an aspiring writer or a writer, he learns that the chances are pretty good that as a musician, writer, actor, he will not make enough money to support himself, a wife, and one or two or three children. So he begins to start seeking other things like selling insurance nationwide rather than going into acting. And he gives up his passion for doing what earns more money. And so boys live today in a world where not only do they continue to give up their passion for doing what earns more money, but then when the father earns more money and doesn't say anything about, all right, I put my passion aside, I'm not doing what I want to do, but I'm doing what I need to do to have my children have more options than I had, then the feminist movement did the really big negative, which is to turn the dad's greater willingness to earn more money if needed into, oh, men have the power and men have privilege, rather than saying men who are dads make sacrifices just to give their children more options, just like the women who are mothers make sacrifices to give their children more options. So we created a world through the feminism of women good, men bad, and took these obligations and turned it into privilege and power rather than a forfeiting of power to be able, if you define power as as being doing something that you're passionate about, and that's that was a huge mistake of feminism. It's yeah. still a mistake. It, it is a huge mistake, and 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 I'll tell you this: one of the things I'm passionate about is I dream of a world. You know, Martin Luther King said that he dreamed dreamed of a world where a man wouldn't be judged by the color of his skin, but by the content of his character, right? Yes. Uh, I dream of a world where having one gender be empowered doesn't come at the expense uh, of putting the other gender down and making them bad and wrong. That's the world that I dream of. Absolutely. Whenever only one sex wins, both sexes lose. 
we are all we are all in the same family boat. We 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 really are, and and in my family, that's that's certainly the truth. Listen, my uh, former wife is a wonderful woman. Uh, I still love her with all my heart. You know, she's the mother of my children, and that position deserves respect. She calls me uh, and cries on my shoulder sometimes. You know, uh, uh, sorry Heather for uh, making this public a little bit, but. She also calls me when my, my eldest boy is about to turn 13. And boy, he's a handful, right? He's given her a hard time. And she was almost in tears a couple of weeks ago because she'd planned this great family uh, trip for post-Christmas to take uh, both boys uh, out west to uh, Alberta, Canada, where her sister lives. Her sister can't travel anymore because of some physical issues that she has. And they were going to get to spend some time with her extended family. And my eldest son didn't want to go. He wants to hang out with his friends. Of course, right? Right. <laughs> and um, he was given a hard time. She was virtually in tears. So next time we were all together, I sat him down. I said, son, apologize to your mom right now. Uh, you know, and, and I was tough on him. And he was like, oh. And I said, you will do what she says. You are going to have a good time. You are going to make this good. And, and, and she was so gratified that I was there to do that. Can she be tough with him? To be sure. But you know what? He's starting to get big, right? And talking back to his mom is not cool. <laughs> not cool in my world. So it's important for mothers and fathers to be a team. Whether you're married or not doesn't matter. What matters is that you have your, your children's best interest at heart and you work together to make it uh, a priority. Uh, if you do this, then your children are going to be successful. And uh, I'm very conscious of the fact that I need to be there for my boys. I'm very conscious of the fact that I need to roughhouse with them, right? I mean, you talk about being that uh, big, rough, tough cream puff for your boys. Uh, maybe expand on that for a couple minutes. Yes. First of all, let me backtrack here and, and, and start with Heather. Heather has a true maternal instinct. And the maternal instinct, a real maternal instinct, involves the instinct to do the best for the son and daughter that she or he is raising, not to make the father into an enemy, not to get involved just with the new man and, and forget about the, the biological dad. It requires talking with and working things through with the biological dad. So that's number one. So Heather is a real maternal hero among women who are divorced. So many women who are divorced um, sort of make their husband into the enemy. Research shows by Glynis Walker in interviewing f children five years and older after divorce, children are five times as likely to say that they're only their mother badmouths their father rather than only their father badmouths their mother. And that's about the worst, one of the worst forms of child abuse that one can do after a divorce because the boy looks in the mirror and particularly and the girl, as does the girl and the, the boy and girls says, sees that they are half of their biological mother and father. They see that through their body language, their eyes, their hair, their nose, etc. And so when a mother says, well, your dad is really a liar, irresponsible, and a narcissist, you know, the kid is feeling like, well, I lied, and I was not responsible as I could have been about turning my homework in, and I am looking in the mirror, so maybe I'm a narcissist. And the boy begins to feel badly about himself. That is, that the, the bad mouthing we do of our um, of our the mother or the father of the biological child is actually an abuse of the child. And Heather has intuited that, and Heather has recognized that the divorce from you is not you being divorced from the children, and that is really the two of you are really role models 
for the way children of divorce need to be raised. And this was one of the reasons why one of the four components of that lead to children of divorce doing well is constant communications counseling. If people are not as naturally good at that as you and Heather are, to be able to go to a counselor and talk with the counselor about what's going on so that you can understand each other's best intent and create strategies that are mutually beneficial uh, for the child. And then the second thing, of course, is that aside from no bad mouthing that, you know, that you live uh, within a reasonable distance from each other. And so, you know, so the two of you are really doing what is done in among parents of divorce in about one out of 20 um, instances. And so you should really be acknowledging of both of yourselves as, you know, as I think you reasonably are, but I just want to reinforce that. And then you asked something that in, in the process of getting to that, I forgot to, I forgot yeah, what the other part what, was. What, thank you so much for that. That's a wonderful acknowledgement. And uh, we, we actually live within 10, 15 minutes drive of each other too, which is wonderful. So what I, what I asked you to comment on was rough housing and the dad as a rough, tough cream puff. Yes, when when we, when you were at the presentation on the boy crisis that I did in Toronto, one of the things I mentioned was that there's a difference between dad style parenting and and, and mom style parenting. I talk about nine of these differences in the in the boy crisis, but I'll just give an example of this one about roughhousing, which is that um, usually when dads are roughhousing with the kids, typically moms will look over and go, I feel like I have just one more child to monitor here, and yet the mom is often trying to restrain herself and you know, not be too controlling and he she sees that the mom and the dad and the children are having fun so but she's imagining in her mind's eye that sooner or later if this keeps up somebody's going to hit their head against something and somebody's going to end up crying and somebody's going to end up hurt and so part of her is feeling like i need to protect this from happening but she's really trying to restrain herself and not being control controlling and so in the in the process of the roughhousing about chances are close to a hundred percent or a hundred percent who knows that the the children do end up crying or hitting their head and and then and then mom starts feeling guilty that oh dear i should have you know paid attention to my instincts and intervened sooner i really was not a good mother about that and as she's working that through suddenly she'll see that the dad says you know something like you you know jimmy and jane you can't do this you know you can't take your elbow to your sister and push her out of the way so let's say the rough housing is the goal of the rough housing is in this case that the children's goal is to pin dad down wrestling wise and dad's goal is to pin all three children down together before he gets pinned down by the three children. And so to start the process out, dad throws the three kids on the couch and the kids jump from the couch to the to the dad's back. And they try to turn the dad over in all sorts of ways. But each child, in addition to trying to pin dad down, wants to be the kingpin of the pinners, down downers, if you will. <laughs> and, um, you know, they're pushing the other one aside to be the, the one that really stands out and does the best and maybe gets dad's approval for doing it so well. And then ultimately, somebody does something that ends up leading to somebody being hurt. And Dad said, okay, Jimmy, what you just did there is you use the elbow on Jane. And you can't use an elbow to push her away. Uh, you can use leverage. You can fake her out. You can, you, know, you can fake me out. And all those things are okay. But these things are not okay. Okay, Dad. Okay, Dad. You know, the kids go, you know, no problem. But then Dad returns to see if the children have learned their lesson. So he returns to the roughhousing. And Mom is going, wait a minute. You just saw the the children got hurt, just like I knew they would, and now you are returning to the rest roughhousing. 
you are, after all, a child I have to monitor. But the dad is returning to the roughhousing because he's given the children a chance to do it right. And he knows that if they don't do it right this time, he will stop the roughhousing and put it off for another day or so. And he knows that if the children are going to lose the roughhousing, they're going to lose excitement. And so therefore, uh, and and therefore they have an incentive now to think of their sister's needs and their sister's feelings or their brother's, younger brother's needs or feelings and do something more empathetic and more assertive, but not aggressive. And so what the data shows is that children who are doing roughhousing, A, they get a bond with the child. B, that bond allows the father to do boundary enforcement, like you can't do this, otherwise you'll lose the roughhousing. And that boundary enforcement does not create resentment because the kids feel so bonded to the children, to the dad, and they want more fun with the dad. And so they're now focusing their energy on making sure that they do think of their brother's or sister's needs, not because they inherently are thoughtful of their brother and sister, but because they want more roughhousing. And But eventually, as they get the muscles of their brains and their neurons connected to think of their brother and sister, empathy begins to be built into their brain and their neurological structure and their neurons connect in that type of way. Empathy for self-serving purposes, but nevertheless, that to serve self well, the child learns that it has to think of somebody besides self. And that is the training that leads to empathy. That's the training that also leads to children being able to uh, distinguish between being assertive. I can win at this um, wrestling by faking dad out, but I can't win at the wrestling by um, putting my elbow in my sister's eyes in order to be able to be the the number one kingpin winner. And so all of these things occur, but they wouldn't occur if dad was not willing at the end of when the child repeats the error that led to somebody to crying, and if dad was not willing to say, okay, that's the end of the roughhousing, and now normally speaking, children will test dad's boundaries, and they'll say, okay, dad, you're right, you're right, you, you, said, you said that before, we won't do that the next time. And then dad, the good dad, says, if he is a good dad, he says, no, I gave you that warning. This The, the, the consequence was, if you did that to, to Gina or your sister, then there would be no more roughhousing. So there is no more roughhousing. We're stopping it now. We can pick up the roughhousing again tomorrow night, but there's no more roughhousing tonight. And so then the next time dad says, you can't do this to Gina without the roughhousing stopping, the children have develop emotional intelligence under fire. That is, they learn to have the emotional intelligence of thinking about their sister's feelings and her needs because the alternative is losing everything that they want, uh, even when they are excited. So they, they, they learn that emotional intelligence under fire, whereas mom will tend to give a warning about how to be considerate and thoughtful. But then when the children violate that, mom tends to repeat that uh, warning. And then when they violate it again, mom tends to up her voice, but repeat it again. And then until mom gets really upset that the children have ignored it five or six times and may uh, create a really major consequence, like, okay, from now on, this there's no more roughhousing. I've warned you a lot of times. And so a, a number of things happen there. One is that mom then feels by saying that from now on, there'll be no more roughhousing. She gets so frustrated that the punishment is greater than it needs to be. And so then she feels badly that she made such an outrageous punishment because she was frustrated. So then she backs off from the punishment and the kids recognize that the overstated punishment gives them leverage over the mother. She, The mother also sees that she's really frustrated that your dad says, 
no more roughhousing if you do this. And dad says it once and the kids obey. Whereas mom says it once and she has to repeat herself over and over again. And the reason she has to repeat herself over and over again is she's less likely to do the boundary enforcement. The good news in all this is that any mom can learn these, this set of skills. It just doesn't tend roughhousing and doing that boundary enforcement does not tend to come as easily to mom as it does to dad. And this is one of the reasons why dad style parenting and mom style parenting of uh, making sure that the roughhousing doesn't get so rough or so mean that it goes too far. This is why checks and balance parenting is so important. Both parents are really important. It's not, it's not good to just have one parent there. Ideally, you want to have both parents there, even in a divorce situation. That's very, very important. Talk about why dads are so important. You know, there are very, so many reasons for this, and you articulate them so well in your book. Well, thank you. One of the, the thing that I had to move up to, even though it was a little bit more boring than normal, I had to move up to a beginning chapter in the Boy Crisis book. It was something called the purpose void because it was so fundamental to understanding the differences between what's happening with boys and girls. I was mentioning that girls have multiple senses of purpose. They can raise children, raise money, do some combination of both. And the culture is really supportive of that. But boys have a different experience in, in the world. Historically speaking, we learned every generation had its war. And therefore, every generation of parents sort of trained its sons to be disposable, potentially disposable in war, and potentially disposable as workers, to be either work in a hazardous profession or to work as an executive where the boy might have to have respect if he became a CEO and worked 60, 70, 80 hours a week and maybe you know died at his death from overwork or stress or so on. And so boys uh, historically have had good news and bad news. The bad news was we train boys to be disposable as a definition of masculinity. The good news is that we have the need for fewer boys in war than we've had in many centuries or if ever. And women are sharing the responsibilities of earning the income to a greater degree. So being a sole breadwinner no longer defines a boy as a, as a man automatically. So that's the good news is that there's less temptation for us to raise our sons so they are disposable. The bad news is that in the past, that created a boy's sense of purpose. The other bad news is that there's no new sense of purpose to replace those old senses of purpose as a way of defining a man. Now, there is potentially a new sense of purpose, which is involves two things. One is a boy discovering who he is uniquely, what his characteristics, his interests, his fulfillments, his passions might be, and then B, discovering how to achieve that, having the discipline and the postponed gratification to achieve that. The first problem is that boys are experiencing this purpose void. So I ended up calling this chapter in the boy crisis, the purpose void. They're experiencing the purpose void plus a dad void. And it's the purpose void combined with a dad void that does not allow the boy to have the guidance of the father and the mother combined to say, okay, sweetie, what are you most interested in? What, what do you find fulfilling? But if you only find out what is fulfilling and you don't learn how to achieve it, that is, you don't have the postponed 
gratification and the discipline to achieve it. And that discipline and the postponed gratification comes from boundary enforcement. So a child just can't have its ice cream anytime it wants without finishing the bees. The child has to learn how to do the things that it, it needs to do in order to get what it wants to do. And when parents are too permissive or when the father isn't involved, and sometimes fathers can be too permissive too, when that combination occurs, that's when the boys become very lethargic because they can't accomplish very much because they don't have postponed gratification, so they can't finish their homework in school. If they happen to be tall, let's say, and they think that they're a natural basketball player, but they don't have the discipline to do the drills over and over again, they don't end up becoming able to be the star of the basketball team that their natural abilities would have allowed for. And so they end up becoming disappointed in themselves. The coach and the teachers become disappointed in them. They feel like they're, they start feeling ashamed of themselves. When it comes to boy-girl time, girls go out with uh, winners, not losers. And so the boy feels like the girls aren't attracted to him. And so they end up going into porn and becoming addicted to porn or addicted to video games and then become more and more depressed. And that can lead to a downward, a slippery slope downhill to becoming both not only depressed, but also suicidal or potentially in worst case scenarios, um, join some organization like ISIS or a gang or drug dealing that channels his testosterone negatively. And in the super worst case scenario, taking up a gun and shooting up the people at school that don't respect him or doing a mass shooting to prove himself to get attention and have people wonder, you know, why didn't I pay more attention to John or Jimmy than I did? Wow. Uh, you know, there, there's a lot of wisdom in what you just shared for parents to to listen to and to understand. Because our boys actually, I would say, I would argue that when they're younger, when they're under 10 especially, they're more sensitive than, than girls. And they need their father to be there for them as well as their mother to help guide them and, and move them in the right direction. Both of my sons are really into sports, and they're both saying, hey, Dad, I'd like to see if I can make it to a professional level. So we have them both playing soccer at a high level, and uh, one of them also plays hockey at a pretty high level, and the other one plays basketball at a high level. And I tell them both, if you want to be a pro, you're going to need to be obsessed about your sport. You're going to need to do it pretty much to the exclusion of everything else. You're going to have to put off playing on your iPad. You're going to have to put off hanging out with your friends all the time. If you really want to make it to be a pro, this is what you need to do. And I, I weep for the boys who don't have a father around to give them those kinds of lessons. You are so on target, Nikki. What you're talking about is introducing trade-offs to your boy. And so the boy who has an enormous need and wants to be the pro, he also probably wants a great deal of approval from his parents, from his friends, from teachers, from people all around him all the time. The immediate approval is immediate gratification approval. Being a pro is postponed gratification approval. And if a boy doesn't have a father around, but it just has people around saying, oh, sweetie, you're great you're wonderful. Oh, you know, oh, you didn't do practice today. Don't worry about it. It's okay. You know, you, you spent today uh, doing something to talk to a friend because you needed the approval of the friend and you don't talk to your son about the trade-offs around, you know, that approval, the friend, that friendship, those are good things in many ways, but they are also going to take away from your being that, that pro. And, you know, let's talk about how important is being a pro to you, how important is having friends every day to you and how 
do they both nurture you? How do they both make you a better person? And do you want to be just a better pro or do you want to be a better person? Are those two necessarily connected or are they disconnected and how so? And what's the capability of your personality to make both of those happen? Or which one do you want to give up if you have to give up one or the other? These are the discussions that need to happen around family dinner night, I have found so many uses when I was doing the research for the boy crisis for family dinner nights, but so many families that didn't know how to conduct family dinner night effectively, that family dinner nights ended up becoming family dinner nightmares, that I ended up creating an appendix to the boy crisis that just talked about how to structure family dinner nights. And then throughout the book, um, with different issues that come up, um, they can adapt that structure to those particular issues. But one of the important things, aside from not having electronics at the table and and to know how to enforce not having electronics at the table during family dinner night is making sure that each person in the family has a certain amount of time to talk about the topic of of the day or what they did during that day or that week and that no one is allowed to interrupt them during that period of time and that the other members of the family see if they got correct what the person who was talking shared so that the person who was talking not only did not get interrupted, but the person who's talking is now confident that other people at the table really understood what they said with the intent that was behind uh, what they said, rather than feeling misunderstood, interrupted, and argued with before they finished their thoughts. And so there's so many uh, nuances to modeling for your children how to make a family really come together rather than having a family dinner night become a family dinner nightmare. Wow, I love that. You know what? Why don't we talk a little bit about what makes for an effective and great family dinner night? I like that idea. I think, you know what, we're going to enforce that at least once a week. we got to have something like this. So walk us through what it's like to have a great family dinner night. What are the key components of it? What do we have to make sure is included and what do we have to make sure doesn't happen? Yes. Number one is that the kids will want to have electronics at the table, chances are. And you have to know that during family dinner night, maybe you'll have a different rule during the the, the nights during the week that are not family dinner night. And um, by family dinner night, it means something that's more structured than just a normal night where your family sits down simultaneously for dinner. I, I suggest not having electronics during those nights either, but that's a bit more flexible than a family dinner night. So let's say the kids are really, uh, you know, oh, I want to talk to my friend. I want to have, I want to text. Uh, I can pay attention to you guys and check my iPhone at the same time. Actually, no, you can't. The data shows that that you cannot multitask without losing the effectiveness of one or more of those tasks. And this is the time for family dinner night. But my, my kids say that they really want that. So what can I do? What can you do? You can unsubscribe them to the plan that you you have them on. You can take their electronics away. But suppose they they really need it for something else. Then, you know, let's say they need their computer for um, something else and they need to have it in their room behind the closed door. No, the door doesn't have to be closed. No, the door doesn't have to be locked. Uh, no, the computer does not have to be in the room. It can be in the in the living room where you can see what's going on. And, you know, but, but I don't have, you know, leverage over my kid. Yes, you do. Do you ever take your kids anywhere for sports, to see a friend, to do anything? There's hundreds of ways parents have leverage over children if it needs to come to that. If the family is being effectively run and the family dinner nights are happening, you will need to use outside external leverage like not taking to your children, taking your children somewhere and not buying them something for dinner or having dessert for dinner. You won't need that when you're running it effectively. But number one is to let your children know 
that you have their best interests at heart and there are some things that you know that they don't know. That's why you're a parent and they're yet a child. And until that they pay their own rent in their own home and take care of themselves completely financially, they are required to follow rules that will be in their best interest and that you are doing before they love them. So a few components there to deconstruct that. that You can't do consequences without the connection of it to love. And one of the things that's really helpful at family dinner nights is to do role playing where let's say there is a tension between you and the children on electronics. And then you have the children play the parents at family dinner night uh, for one of your family dinner night exercises and say, and then you role play the children who want the electronics at the table. And you'll be amazed at how quickly the children figure out ways of making sure that you have the, you have those electronics kept away and they'll come up with reasons why the electronics need to be kept away. Or alternatively, you let them run the family dinner night and that you parents just be preoccupied with the electronics and say, oh yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm paying, I can, I can pay attention to you and that and the electronics at the same time, that's uh, no problem and the, and the kids will begin to experience the frustration of trying to organize something that can't be organized because they're preoccupied. Second thing is the importance of listening to everybody. And one of the things that turns family dinner nights into family dinner nightmares is that oftentimes one of the children or one of the parents is more prone to talk than others. And so family dinner night doesn't feel like a a reasonable distribution of everybody being heard. So having somebody in the family be a moderator, and that should be the children having a turn to be the moderator once they're old enough to be able to to do that and say each person has three minutes to talk about what went on during the day or their week that was most important and any challenges that they're having. And so no matter what each person says, let's say you have four people at the table, Um, each person gets three minutes. So you don't spend more than three minutes on each person. You go around and at the end of 12 minutes, each person has had a chance to speak. And then if there's a topic for the night, you move into that topic with another limitation on time about what what each person has as a, ch- as a chance to, to talk about that topic. Maybe the topic is too much homework is being assigned at school. Maybe the topic is um, we're having trouble with our friendships. Maybe the topic is something else. And so everybody has a chance to contribute to that. But when each person speaks, there's no interruption during that time period that's allotted. And when the person is finished speaking, the other people at the table say, so what we hear you say is this, is that accurate, Jimmy? And Jimmy says, no, that's not accurate because of so-and-so. And so rather than arguing with Jimmy that that's really what you say, you keep listening to Jimmy until Jimmy says, yes, now I feel understood by you. And that is not a time to argue or disagree with the Jimmy who's talking. That's only a time to leave the person who's talking feeling understood. The most important single thing that every child and parent needs is to feel understood, but especially children. And so once the children feel understood and then you move on to the next the next person, they have their allotted time. And then you move into a discussion where judgment or analysis or a different perspective can be offered. But before different perspectives can be offered, it's so crucial to prevent a family dinner nightmare from occurring that no one be, is interrupted and that everyone feel understood about their perspective first. I love it. I, I think that's a, a template that I'm going to use for my own family's family dinner night. And my listener is going to benefit from it as well. And so, and that, and that, by the way, is all written out. I just have done the first two of five of five steps in family dinner night. And that's all written out in Appendix A of the Boy Crisis because I, I feel that that is so 
pivotal in um, whether a family turns that family dinner night into something precious or the family dinner nightmare. Yeah, I love it. You know what? And, and that's why this book is so important. And listener, if you're listening to this, it's a rare privilege to have a thought leader of, of Dr. Warren Farrell's stature on our show. And this book is an important book. If you're a parent or if you know someone who's a parent, and especially if they're divorced parents and they have boys, it's important for them to have this book. I recommend that you pick up a copy of this book for yourself and you actually pick up another five to hand out to the people that you care about that are facing these issues because they have boys or they have boys in their family through uh, brothers and sisters who have boys as children. It's a very important book, The Boy Crisis. Uh, I had the privilege of, of meeting you, uh, Warren, and you signed the book for me, for which I'm very grateful. And Lister, you got to make sure you pick up a copy of this book. you got to make sure you buy five copies and hand it out to the people that you care most about in your world. Warren, we like to end off each and every one of our episodes by asking you, as our expert guest, what are your top three expert action steps, your suggestions for how our listener can enhance and improve their life? What say you? If you're a man and you're a dad, study what your unique contributions are likely to be as, um, as a dad. Um, study that portion of the con of the boy crisis that is that's focused on the tendencies of dads to do certain things that are needed in the family. So allow yourself to know your value, and then share that in a loving way with your wife or your woman friend, and in a way that also incorporates listening to her and her value and her perspective. So that's number one. Number two, let's say you're a single mom who cannot get dad involved. Uh, make sure you get your children involved, your sons uh, particularly involved in Boy Scouts, Cub Scouts, in a faith-based community where they have a spiritual leader um, that um, also organizes other boys about your son's age to be able to hear your son's uh, perspectives, uh, your, your, have, uh, hear other boys' perspectives of your, of your son's age so your boy doesn't feel lonely and feel like his problems are only his problems that often leads to depression. Number three is whether you're a, a single mom or um, a mom and dad working together, make sure that you don't, that you have, excuse me, really good boundary enforcement. Boundary enforcement is, is the key to getting children able to be able to produce what they need to produce. If, you do, if you're afraid of doing consequences for your children, you will give your children the most disastrous con consequence, which is, which is feeling disappointed in their ability to achieve things in life and therefore becoming ashamed of themselves and withdrawing. And I guess if I were to add a fourth, is uh, almost all divorces come from poor communication. Poor communication's single biggest Achilles heel is our inability to handle personal criticism without becoming defensive. And so um, if, if you want to prevent a divorce for begin, to begin with or have a wonderful marriage that allows your children to feel comfortable getting married because they have good role models as to how to communicate, um, put a, more effort into learning how to do communication well. I do couples communication courses around the country. You can check out mine, but also, you know, if you have somebody locally that, that you trust and is really good at helping you both communicate with each other, make sure you find a couples communication counselor that you don't admire because of his or her genius, but that you respect because they're teaching you how to love and hear your partner more effectively than you have before. 
Warren, that's amazing. So in addition to buying the book, I'm going to make sure that people can get in touch with you about your couples communication courses. What's the best website for them to get to for that? I do warrenferrell.com. That's Warren, W-A-R-R-E-N. Farrell is F-A-R-R-E-L-L. It's not Will Farrell, but Warren Farrell. <laughs> Good. I, I I'm glad it's not Will Farrell. <laughs> so um, that's amazing. Sorry. We'll make sure we put that information in the show notes so that people can take advantage of these courses. And we're in Canada, but there's a lot of people who have uh, communication issues in, in in their couplehood, as it were. So I think they'd really benefit from uh, being able to be a part of one of your courses. So, listener, it's been a rare treat to have someone of Dr. Farrell's stature here on our show. And if you're wondering to yourself, well, I can never be like Warren Farrell. I haven't done all this research into my area of expertise. You know, maybe you haven't, but you've got expertise. You've got hard-won expertise that your life has given you. And if you want to know if that expertise can be brought to bear on important problems the way Warren's uh, has been brought to bear on an important problem, the answer is absolutely yes. And the best way for us to figure out how you can do that, make the difference you were born to make and make a boatload of money doing it, is for us to jump on a call together. All you have to do to do that is go to our website, ecircleacademy.com, click on the button in the top right-hand corner, which is book your success call now. And what we will do is we will spend an hour on the phone helping you understand, A, what your expertise is, helping you figure out how to monetize it and how to have it make the difference that you were born to make so that you get to live a life of significance, a life of purpose, a life that matters and not be stuck in a purpose void to use one of Warren's great phrases. And that's something that's available to you. It's absolutely free of charge. Myself or a member of my team will will do that call for you. So make sure you take advantage of this. Your time is now and do not procrastinate from sharing your gifts with the world any longer. Warren, thank you so much for being on the show. It's really been an honor to have you here. Vicki, it's been a total pleasure. You're a tremendous interviewer. You state things so well and powerfully when you're stating things in the affirmative, and you also listen so completely and carefully when you're um, asking after you ask a question. So I really appreciated the hour with you. Thank you so much, Warren. And that wraps up another amazing episode of the podcast, The Thought Leader Revolution. To find out more about today's incredible guest, one of the top 100 thought leaders on the planet, Dr. Warren Farrell, please check out the show notes. And to find out how you can jump on a call with myself or a member of my team to help you live the best version of yourself, go to eastcircleacademy.com and make sure that you click on that button in the top right-hand corner of the website. Until next time, goodbye.